He is risen. Blessings to you on this Easter day. I'm so thankful that you've joined me for the Easter Sunday morning message. Easter is a very special day in our church calendar for all of those who follow Christ and have trusted in him for their salvation. And so I'm so glad that you have joined for the service this morning. And I certainly also want to thank Chelsea. It's great to have worship music included in this time. Such a beautiful song that she sang. As I was thinking and praying about this special Sunday, Easter, in our church calendar, and, and whether or not I should take a week off from what we've been studying in Revelation, I was actually pleasantly surprised uh, to see how well our passage in the book of Revelation, towards the end of chapter 1, uh, how well this passage fits on this special day. Uh, so as usual, the Holy Spirit is a much better planner than I am, and I think it's going to be okay. So we are looking at Revelation chapter 1 and verses 12 through 20 this morning. So I would invite you to open up your Bible to that passage. Revelation chapter 1, this is our fourth and final uh, time in chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at uh, verses 12 through 20. And I just want to start this morning by reading that passage to you. And so let's go ahead and take a look um, at that together. Let's read this together. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray together as we begin the study. Heavenly Father, we love you this morning. And we are so thankful for your love for us. Jesus, we exalt and praise you because you are worthy of our praise. You are the one who came from heaven to the earth. You lived as a man. You went to the cross. You died on that cross for us to pay the penalty for our sins. And then you rose from the grave. And we celebrate that today. We celebrate your resurrection today, Lord Jesus. And so we give you praise and we give you glory. And Holy Spirit, my prayer is that as we study this passage together, Holy Spirit, would you make it real to us? Would you breathe new life into us and help us to understand what we study? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So for context this morning, I started reading with verse 12. But if you'll remember, I unpacked that verse for you last week. John sees that the one speaking to him, he hears the voice and he turns around and he sees that the one speaking to him is one like a son of man. And we talked about the reality that son that John is seeing Jesus here, but he's seeing Jesus unlike he had ever seen him before. And please remember, brothers and sisters, the significance of this title the title, the Son of Man, and the fact that the Son of Man is standing in the middle of the lampstands. In doing this, Jesus is assuring us that he is standing with his church. And that's really how I left it last week, that Jesus is standing in the midst of the lampstands. He is standing with his church. He has not and will not abandon us. He is with us, and he will be with us until he returns for us. So how does John describe the glorified Jesus? That's really where the passage goes next. The the Jesus that's standing before John is quite a bit different than the one that he remembered from his younger years, and we kind of walked through that last week. But how does he describe the glorified Jesus now? Are you ready for this? Let's look at John's description of him together. We need to see what he says here. First of all, he writes that he is clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, this is another one of those times when what is written would have immediately meant something to the original audience who was hearing it. The first readers of the book of Revelation would have immediately thought about the garments of the priesthood. This would not have been a mystery to them. We have to study, we have to understand the historical context. But for John's original readers, the people who this letter comes to in the seven churches that he sends Revelation to, this would have been as clear as crystal to them. That it would have been as clear to them as if you or I were, were out on the street and we saw an individual in a police uniform. What would you immediately think when you saw someone in a police uniform? You would say, oh, that's a police officer, right? The same thing is happening here. They would have known very well. John's original audience would have known very well passages such as Exodus chapter 28 and Exodus chapter 39, Leviticus chapter 8. And I would encourage you to look at all of these, but look at these passages and you'll see where the clothing of the priests is described in detail. There's no mystery here for the original audience. They would have seen priests dressed this way throughout their lives. Uh, This was the uniform for the priest. And so Jesus being dressed in the same manner in the Revelation, wearing a long robe with a golden sash, would have seemed very symbolic to them of the high priest of Israel, the priesthood of Israel. 
And so we know, church, don't we, from our study of the New Testament, from the book of Hebrews specifically, that Jesus is the high priest for all of those who are trusting in him for salvation. There's this beautiful passage in Hebrews chapter 4 where we see this so clearly, and it's mentioned other times throughout the book of Hebrews as well. But here the author writes, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then continuing on with John's description of Jesus Let's see what he says next. Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, he describes the glorified Jesus, the Son of Man, this way. He says that the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, what is the significance here? Again, we need to see the connection to the Old Testament. You're going to hear me say that so many times in the coming weeks. Daniel records a vision that's given to him, and we find this recorded back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, where he writes, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His thrones were fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And then look at verse 15, going back to Revelation. Revelation 1.15, the first part of that verse, says his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Again, knowing the Old Testament helps us to understand the symbolism. The prophet Ezekiel sees a vision and Ezekiel records this. He says, And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. And then notice what John writes next in the second half of verse 15. I think we're going to see that all of this is significant. The, the latter half of verse 15 says, And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Again, we need to go back to the prophecies of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 43 and verse 2. And behind the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Another Old Testament passage where we see the same imagery that's being conveyed here in Revelation and in Ezekiel uh, is in Daniel chapter 10. And here Daniel writes, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So let's pause, because I know I've been throwing a lot at you here. It's a lot of detail and a lot of history and different passages. So let's just pause and review for a quick minute. What is all of this communicating? I mean, what really is the significance? Pastor Terry, why are you going on and on about the way that the Son of Man is dressed when John sees him and what he looks like in his appearance? What does John see when he looks at the Son of Man? Just 
just a quick review. First of all, he's dressed like the priests of Israel. This symbolizes that he indeed is the high priest for all of those who trusts in him. And, and we saw in the book of Hebrews as well that that's affirmed for us in who Jesus is, who the Son of Man is. Second, notice that all of the physical characteristics, I think this is the point, this is so important, all of his physical characteristics, his white hair, his eyes like fire, his feet like bronze, a voice that roars like the water, all of these, all of these, church, tie him to the descriptions of God in the Old Testament. And so they symbolize his deity. This symbolism would have been absolutely clear to the original audience. You and I need to study it. They didn't need to study it. They were very well aware of it when they first heard the words of the Revelation. Okay, just a few more things for us to see in John's description of the Son of Man. First of all, let's look at verse 16 in Revelation chapter 1. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, we'll talk about the seven stars here in a minute. What's the significance of the sharp two-edged sword? I mean, have you ever really thought about what this verse is saying? And what's up with it popping out of Jesus' mouth? I mean, that's kind of trippy. I mean, is this like a circus trick? Is this something that Jesus does for fun on the side? No. No, I don't think so. I, I think it's safe to say that this, again, is symbolism. The sharp two-edged sword coming out of our Lord's mouth is symbolic. Well, if that's true, we have to ask the question, symbolic for what? What is the symbolism that's being conveyed to the readers here? Again, we need to look back to the Old Testament, to a passage prophesying the coming of the Messiah. So let's see what Isaiah records here for us about the coming Messiah. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4. But with righteousness, he, the Messiah, speaking of the Messiah, shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. And so here we have two passages, don't we? An Old Testament passage from Isaiah, a New Testament passage from Revelation. They both reference Jesus. Isaiah looks forward to the coming of Jesus, Revelation looking back. But what does the sword in Revelation chapter 1 and the rod in Isaiah chapter 11 coming from the mouth of Jesus symbolize? It would seem that these would both be metaphors. Metaphors for the word or the words of the Son of Man. In Greek, there are two Greek words that we translate word in the New Testament, logos and rhema. There's a powerful passage. If you were to look back, and I encourage you to do this, at John chapter 15, and especially verse 3, Jesus says to the 12, he says to the disciples, you are already clean. And if you look at that word in the Greek, it's changed, transformed. You are already clean because of my logos, because of my word. 
Later on, he uses the other Greek word, rhema. You're already changed because of my words. What's the point? The point is that the words of Jesus Christ are both true and powerful. The words of Jesus change us. They transform us. They're powerful. The words of Jesus are just. They serve as both a defense for the oppressed and as judgment for the oppressor. The words of Jesus are words of comfort for his people and words of destruction for his enemies. Let me show you just one passage related to this. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the author writes, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. There it is again the symbolism of the sword coming from the mouth of Christ. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, church, why is all of this significant? Why does all of this matter? There was another well-known prophecy concerning the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, I know I'm hitting you with so much Old Testament uh, this morning, but I think it's so important for us to see all of this. Daniel chapter 7 and verses uh, 13 through 14 say this, He sees the vision of the reigning Son of Man. This is prophetic. This is something still to come. And Daniel sees this. And he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. What's the point? Here's the point. The Son of Man will reign forever. He is a king who will reign over his kingdom forever, for ages and ages to come. Eternal, an eternal kingdom. How does John respond coming face-to-face to the Son of Man. Now remember, this is Jesus, his Savior, his Lord, his friend. This is someone he ate with, he talked with, he lived with for years. He hugged him. They, I'm sure they goofed around together. He probably had spent many late nights talking to Jesus. But now when he sees Jesus like this, as the glorified Son of Man, what does John do? Well, he does the only sensible thing. The only sensible thing. When John sees him, he falls at his feet as though he was dead. He worships Christ. He worships him, for he is worthy of worship. And notice here in the text, Jesus' response to John's worship. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. Perfect love casts out fear, church. Perfect love casts out fear. And that's what Christ had for John. That's what Christ has for you and me. There's no reason to be afraid in the presence of Christ any longer. And here Jesus says to John, fear not, I am the first 
and the last. You see, my presence is something that should bring you comfort, is what Jesus is saying here to John. Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last. He, he begins his revelation. We're just getting started. Jesus is just opening up the door right now, and John's getting his first peek inside of the revelation. And he starts his revelation to John by declaring his deity. This is how God the Father identified himself in the Old Testament. The same phrase, first and the last. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And look at what else. Look at what else Jesus says about himself. Back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. He says, And the living one, I'm the first and the last, and I'm the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. All of these claims, church, all of these claims in verse 18 involve Jesus' triumph over death. By rising from the dead, Jesus offered hope to all of his followers if they faced death for his name. No matter what happens, no matter what we face in this life, our future is secure because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus once again gives John his assignment. I love this. We've already seen this. We saw it back in verse 11. And here in verse 19, Jesus makes it clear to John what he's supposed to do with this information. He says, write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place, after this. John is not to keep the revelation to himself. His assignment is to share it with the other servants of Christ. John must testify now to what he has personally seen. And I'm sure John was not surprised by this. This didn't this command from his Lord didn't take him by surprise. He had spent many years being a witness to Jesus being a witness to things he had seen. Remember, years before, John had written some letters to churches that he had pastoral responsibility over. And at the beginning of 1 John, here's what he wrote. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What he's talking about here is the very presence of Christ. He had been a witness to the life and the ministry of Jesus all the way to the end, all the way to the cross, all the way through the resurrection to the very moment when Jesus had ascended back to the Father. Notice at the end of our passage for this morning, Jesus explains a mystery to John. It's the last verse that we'll look at today. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, as for the mystery, Jesus says here, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus wants to be sure 
that there is no mystery concerning certain symbols in Revelation. Now, believe me, as we work through this book, there'll be some mystery. There'll be plenty of mystery coming, but he wants certain symbols to be very clear in our minds, as, especially as we go through chapters two and chapter, chapter two and chapter three. It's too important that we understand these, that those who hear the revelation understand. It's too important that we, church, you and I, understand what's happening. And so he tells John very clearly, lampstands equals churches, stars equals angels. Don't forget that. Don't forget this verse. We need to have that firmly in our mind as we study through the next couple of chapters. Whew. Well, we made it through chapter one. Good job, church. Of course, I don't know, maybe you've already turned off the sermon by now. But assuming you're still with me, uh, let's move on to some application. How can we apply this passage? Well, a few ideas for you. First of all, Rejoice in the resurrection. Rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus. What, what better day than Easter Sunday to get started? But don't let it stop on Easter Sunday. We want to be a church that rejoices in the resurrection every day, not just one out of 365. In, in verse 18, Jesus identified himself as the living one. He is the one who died and lives forevermore. Jesus has triumphed over the grave, over death, over Hades. And so on this Easter Sunday, it is fitting to think of this glorious truth on this day. But let's again rejoice in the resurrection each and every day. That's the first point of application. I would also encourage you to think about, remember that all of history is moving towards God's determined end. Verse 19 is one of the many verses that reassures us that in the end, the purposes of God will triumph. His word is powerful. The word of Jesus is powerful. It's a sharp two-edged sword. It will accomplish its purpose. Third, know that Jesus holds the church in his hands. Brothers and sisters, cling to the words of John chapter 10. This beautiful passage you see there. John chapter 10. Jesus speaks about all of those who would enter into salvation through him. For all of those who have trusted in Christ for salvation. And what promise does he make to them? He says, I give them eternal life. And they, my church, will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Church, bank on it. Jesus stands with his church. Jesus cares for his people. The future of the church is in his hands. You cannot be lost from the hand of Christ. It's not that we are holding on to him that makes the difference. It's that he is holding on to us, and he has promised his Father that he will not lose one of us. And so we can have that confidence and that assurance. Finally, and the, the fourth point, final point, the church is advancing in the face of opposition. 
sometimes, friends, it doesn't feel this way to us. But the truth of Scripture is that we are advancing in the face of opposition. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you see the quote there, uh, one of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, we live each day as if it were our last, and each day as if there was a great future because of Jesus Christ. There may be many chapters to our story that are difficult, but in the end, at the end of the book, it's, it, it has already been written. The end is glorious. Here's the end. Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 through 5. I know I'm skipping ahead. You might think, well, Pastor, this is kind of like skipping to the end of the end of a great mystery novel. Well, I'm sure you've already read the book of Revelation, right? But let me remind you of the end. Chapter 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the end of the story, church, and it's a glorious, glorious end. Listen, I think this is a timely passage for us to study this morning. With everything that's going on in the world, everything feels different right now because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Everything feels strange to us. Is everything going to go back to the way it was before? Uh, maybe there'll be a, a new normal post-coronavirus? I, I don't know. I don't know the answers to those questions. I'm, I'm guessing like everybody else is when it comes to world events and what's happening. But here's what I do know. Church, here's what I do know, and I believe this with all of my heart. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, has triumphed over death, and is alive today, we can be assured that in the end, the purposes of God will triumph. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, holds the church in his hands, we can be sure that we will advance in the face of opposition. The end of the story has already been written, and we win. We can bank on that together. Well, after four messages, church, we're finished with chapter one. I hope that you will join me as we start chapter two next Sunday morning and we begin to study through the letters to the seven churches. God bless you. Have a wonderful Easter Sunday.